0: All right, folks, you know what time it is. It's time for an ad for Overcast. Overcast is an independent podcast app that embraces the open world of podcasting instead of locking it down. No exclusives, no premium content, no paywalls. Just a great podcast app for everyone. As always, you can get it for free on the App Store. Hey, y'all. What's up? We got a podcast. Well, you know that. There's another podcast that we think uh, you, as a listener to Ergo, might want to know about, and it's called Scene on Radio.
1: It's a show that dives deep into history to tell stories that explore who we really are as a
0: society and how we got this way. In their best known season, Seeing White, <laughs> the show looks at racism by laying out the invention and evolution of. Whiteness. And in their latest season four, Scene on Radio retells the story
1: of democracy in the U.S. or lack thereof, showing how anti democratic forces have always been with us and exploring how we could move toward real democracy. So
0: definitely check that out. That's seen on radio. Scene on Radio. S C E N E on Radio my book page in my book page my page my page in my book well hello hey this is ergo it is i am kiss and i am technical difficulty Damon. <laughs> it's been a it's been a wild one what we do here is showcase the folks reshaping the culture of our city and world for the more equitable and creative uh damon has been suspended in cyberspace over the last uh recording session how you doing over there dame
1: I am spiritually proficient, technically difficult. I'm, I'm struggling mm-hmm. over here. My, my, this COVID world of of Zoom recording is, is my computer is wants a vacation. It's it's that time of year for us to wind down.
0: I think so. We did like almost eighty episodes this year and had no technical difficulties for the most part. And then on this last one, it's been an avalanche. So I think that's a pretty clear sign that we should take a little break so this will be our last episode of the year and then we're going to take a couple weeks off before we come back to continue our notebook suite um, which speaking of notebook suite we have a wonderful wonderful episode for you today with writer editor and critic elizabeth mendez berry
1: elizabeth really talked us through one i think the utilitarian nature of writing, which was really interesting and exciting. Sometimes we really like idealize it, but just the idea of writing as a way to sustain yourself. Um, And then two, how the cultural conversation and discourse around music, film, other popular cultural material uh, is really important in terms of moving forward, the total discourse of this transformative project that connects us all.
0: Elizabeth Mendez-Berry is the vice president and executive editor of One World, an imprint of Random House. The list of writers on their imprint is bonkers. She's also the co-founder of Critical Minded, an organization reshaping the way criticism looks and works in our culture. Uh, She has been a music writer and journalist for decades, including writing in the 90s for The Source and Vibe. Um, She gave us a writing prompt, as we're doing with each of our guests in the suite, um, and hers related really closely to her work as a music writer, uh, which we talk about a lot in the interview. So what the prompt is, is pick a song that you've loved or listened to many, many times. You're going to start by listening to it again, and start by focusing on all of your senses, not just what do you hear, but what other senses are activated listening to this song. Jot down what your senses are experiencing while you listen. And then listen to it two to three more times and just write down a record of what speaks to you, whether it's a word, a chord, a rhythm, something that you hadn't noticed before, something that you always love and remember about that song. You're going to make kind of a list or a litany of the things that jump out. And then from there, write just like a 150 to 200 word review of that song or album. And it doesn't have to be, I think this is good or I think this is bad. It could be what the song does for you, the role it served in your life, or just an observation of kind of that sensory experience.
1: We want to avoid that Andy Bernard criticism out here.
0: I'm embarrassed. I don't get it.
1: It's the episode where uh, Pam's dad is like divorcing her mom and they're like watching the movie together. And he's like, I'm a horrible movie critic. But then he says he's going to be a food critic and an art critic. And he says, I think that art is bad
0: I think <laughs> this food is bad maybe avoid the Bernard school of critique for sure <laughs> alright let's, uh, let's not fuck around any longer do your prompts, do your writing that's your homework if you want it, extra credit and let's get to this conversation, our last interview of the year with Elizabeth Mendez Berry oh yeah We are so excited to be continuing our notebook suite today, getting to know a new friend and someone who I'm so excited to learn from folks. Elizabeth Mendez-Berry is here. (laughs) 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 Um, Let's just start with our two-part question that we start all of our episodes with. Um, In this time, this moment, this season, how is the world treating you and how are you treating the world?
2: man that is a tough question in these times i would say the world is treating me well in the sense that i'm have food clothing shelter and i'm am able to be with my family which i wasn't for a long time because of the border crossing um but obviously a pretty unprecedented time in the world and observing it and and concerned about it and devastated by it pretty frequently um and then i guess me treating the world i'm trying to treat it as gently as i can you know because i feel like it's not getting a whole lot of gentleness and a lot of that has to do with just you know obviously staying home and and just being as attuned to what's needed that i can do and then when i do go out and into the world just trying to be as tender with it as i can
0: Mm. i love that idea of gentleness as being like a in short supply, and like that's something to provide right now. That's beautiful. Um, Dame, you want to start with the writer question? I do, I do. Question? So we, we're in this series, and
1: so grateful to have you here, where we're, we're talking to different folks who have you know these impactful relationships to writing. And so was there ever a time you remember where you went from writing, which many of us have the privilege of having some relationship to, to seeing yourself as a writer?
2: Yeah, it happened pretty early in my life for me. So I think there's a version of writing, which is kind of highfalutin and literary and stuff. And then there's a version of writing, which is how you get paid, which is what I did. <laughs> you know, I was a journalist, right? I was a, I was writing, you know, music reviews for $25 and getting free, um, free tickets to the concert. And that seemed okay. like a great, you know, great deal. That's a hustle right um, there. <laughs> yeah. So I started doing that when I was you know, 19 or something like that, I started for my college paper, and then I, I started writing for my, the alternative weekly. And so it wasn't, I never had, I actually know a lot of people who have kind of complexes around whether they are a writer or they're not a writer. And I was like, well, you write, so you're a writer. I don't, I don't attach kind of a particular value to that. I just think it's, you know, it's a practice. I, I didn't make a great living. I had to do a DJ, I waitress. I did a lot of other things to, to get by, but I really did it for money. I'm like, I wasn't one of those people who was a journal writer. I wasn't, you know, I didn't have a romantic relationship with writing. I didn't write haikus in my spare time. I really wrote to make a living. And I think when I learned that you could do that, which I learned very young, that kind of defined my orientation towards it. And I just think I never had the romantic relationship writing that I think a lot of writers do.
0: Where did that conception of this is a way to make a living come from? What were the examples you saw around you?
2: You know, I, it's not so much that I saw examples. I, when I was in college, I did not think I was going to be a journalist or anything like that. Um, and then it all had to do with money. This is so, <laughs> but <laughs> basically I saw a sign literally <laughs> in my suburban college that I was going to, that said free music concert tickets in exchange for a review. And I was like, well, I can't afford the tickets, but I could write the review. I had no idea what I was doing, but I I got the tickets. I wrote the review and that was the beginning of my career.
1: Do you remember the concert?
2: uh, You know, Boss Hog was like a punk rock. Um, They were great. Christina Martinez, really awesome. So that's how it started. And then, you know, in that case, I wasn't actually making cash money, but I was, you know, obtaining something that I wanted. And then I started writing for the Alternative Weekly pretty soon after that. I definitely have written for free. I don't want to pretend that I haven't, but um, not a whole lot.
0: There's almost no, no better feeling than walking up to a venue and saying, I'm on the press list and then your name actually being there. <laughs> yeah. It's one of the like great, simple pleasures of life.
2: <laughs> no, it's a beautiful thing. And then it also ruins you when you later on in life are no longer on the guest list. And you're like, but I think what is this? one of the things that I want to say about this in case, I mean, for me, I haven't talked about it this way before, but I think of writing as labor, you know, especially journalism. It's like, okay, I have to call seven people, do seven interviews in order to do that piece, right? That's my time. That's my, you know, there's an opportunity cost. I could be, you know, delivering lunch or I could be, you know, DJing or whatever else I was able to do at that time. It's labor. And I think when you see it that way, that has had real consequences for the way that I've approached it over the years and also for the fact that I believe that writers deserve economic justice. And I don't believe I, I got it. You know, I started out at $25 for a review. That's not minimum wage. But I think those ideas shaped uh, how I approached it because I really was looking to make a living.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm, that labor notion of like sustainability and this almost like really utilitarian approach is really resonating. But something else I'm also hearing is about access, right? Like there's a space that you wanted to be in, the connection to to cultural performance that, you know, this being on the list notion, and, and it, that just resonates because that's a lot of why we started doing this podcast. And I think, you know, it's a similar kind of lane or venue of like, we want to be connected to this cultural explosion around us and like using this platform as a way to, have access to
2: it. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think at the money that you're getting paid as a writer, there has to be some glamour associated with it. Some perks. It's it's really, it's really not worth it otherwise, right? (laughs) But I think also there were a couple of things that happened for me in, you know, I I started out thinking I would work in human rights. My background is from Colombia. Colombia is a country, I grew up during the civil war. I really thought that was going to be my work. And then it turned out I just wasn't that good at it. And so, you know, and then I was actually not that bad at writing these reviews. There was some momentum there. But the the broader idea that I thought a lot about, and especially because I was literally like I was thinking about human rights and then I was thinking about music criticism. What do they have to do with each other? And where I landed was that, you know, this is a, a quote from my friend Jeff Chang. Culture is where all of the people are all of the time and politics is where some of the people are some of the time. (laughs) And so if that's the case, which I think is totally accurate when you, when you find out what people are excited about, what they want to talk about, how they feel people like across, you know, political lines, across experiential lines, it's culture. Damon, to your point, I feel like what I was interested in participating in was the, the conversation that mattered and shaping it. But I was also sort of religiously an outsider. Like I, I was very adamant about not being friends with artists. I didn't want to be compromised by that. I had a very strong idea about my role, which was to be the advocate for the music, for the audience. In doing that, I had to be willing to tell the hard truths or be, you know, critical in certain ways. Um, and so I had the backstage
1: pass, but I wasn't in the VIP. <laughs> True, true, true. That's a good distinction. Shaping the discourse really resonates as well.
0: And I I almost only exclusively want to be with the people who have the backstage pass, but I don't want to be with the people who have the VIP. Like the people who want those two things, that line is a very helpful line in terms of like, it's not just about being there. It's also about trying to contribute something to it, right? Or, or, Or help shape it or respond to it or be in conversation with it a little differently.
2: Yeah, definitely. And I think that I was fortunate to go from, you know, my alternative weekly roots to wind up being at Vibe magazine at a time when Vibe and The Source were playing a super important role in the communities that were organized around hip hop and to a lesser extent R&B, I would say. But it was just this idea that criticism, The Five Nights and The Source at that time was such an important you know, cultural contribution. Like whoever got five mics, it was like, (gasps) you know, and and the critics took it as seriously as the fans did and the artists did. And so there was this idea that criticism was not just part of the culture, but advancing the culture. You know, that is not obviously always the case because there have definitely been instances in, in my life, in my career, and in many other people's where as a critic, you get reduced to a hater. As a critic, you get reduced to someone who... Is just jealous, right? Who wishes they could have. In my case, I always say, I'd never wanted to be a rapper, but I did want to be a backup dancer. So I'm a failed backup dancer, but I don't think that has implications for my <laughs> criticism, right? But yeah, so I think that outsider view and the notion that it's useful and valuable and necessary part of culture is a really, really important one. And it's a difficult one. You know, it's difficult for people to hear. And you can imagine like as, as kind of a serial outsider, I definitely have gotten myself into a whole lot of trouble over the years, but I, I, I stand by it and so much so that I co-founded an initiative that's arguing for not just that approach,
0: but um, for the value of, of that labor. I think this is a perfect opportunity to, I think it'd be helpful, not just like the elevator pitch of, of what that work uh, looks like for you right now with critical minded, um, but in addition to that, how do you see that work contributing to kind of this larger culture work This in relation to what you were hoping you were doing when you were doing that work? And your alt all weekly, you're stepping into, into um, who gets five mics.
1: And I must interrupt to say that, Critical Minded does sound like
0: a dope 90s
1: rap group name. So you may not have <laughs> had aspirations of being a rapper, but you definitely have like a boom bap rap name going to the top.
0: <laughs> oh man, there are some brand newbie features in the catalog. We no,
2: no, you know what? It, it is. It's it's named for a Boogie Damn Productions album. Right, 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 right. I definitely am not an MC, not an MC, but when it comes to to naming things it's like it that's one of my favorite things you know so this was super fun the the if culture is important right if culture is where as Jeff says you know all of the people are all of the time the conversation about culture is even more important, I would argue, because one thing is, especially given the level of corporate consolidation we live with, you know, and the role that corporate, and I work for corporations, I I say this with with a certain amount of affection, but I'm a critic, so I can't help it. Um, We're consuming culture all the time, right? But do we have the skills and sort of the glee in sort of interacting with culture? And sort of being an active participant versus a passive participant, right? So, what does that mean? That means things like there are the fan fan communities, which I think are really important and wonderful, but you know, there are cultural uh, forms that reinforce some really negative dynamics in our communities, and or and or just boring or not good or whatever. And when we don't have the tools and the space to get into it about them, where does that leave us? So, for example, when I was at Vibe, uh, Nas's album *Stillmatic* came out, and that album I reviewed it, and it had some good songs on it, but it was also really you know, it was a kind of a capitulation to corporate hip hop in that time in terms of the production and all of these different, mm. it was like, oh me, oh me. Oh my God, that song. Oh me, owe oh me back. Like you owe your rent. I mean, it was just oh, like, yeah. it was like misogyny and, you know, money. It was terrible. Um, so I wrote, I wrote the review and at the time, you know, we weren't in social media, but we created a space for people to say, oh, you know what, I might love the beat on that song, or I might hate the beat on that song, I might have aesthetic, you know, appreciation for it. But I actually really don't like the ideas that it's reinforcing in me and and in my community, for example, if that's the case. I think those spaces are so essential. And what has happened with the emaciation of alternative weeklies with just rampant racism and newsrooms is that there's so few critics of color who can actually make a living doing this work. And the implications that that has for how culture that's owned by white led corporations impacts all communities is really devastating. And I think ultimately one of the things that I wrote uh, in this piece that I did with Chi Wei Yang, who's my co-founder of Critical Minded about criticism, you know, is like, oh, Maybe it was for that. I can't remember where I wrote it, but it was basically like the tiki torches in Charlottesville are extremely obvious markers of white supremacy, right? But when you look at what a particular Hollywood studio puts out, it's a much more effective ambassador of supremacy because it's subtle and we don't even notice, right? But if you look at your your little, if you have little kids, I have kids, if you look at little girls and you see what they're being, and boys and what they're being taught about, what it is to be a princess and all of this stuff it's completely white supremacist culture right so how do we develop a language to critique that i think it's politically really significant and i also think just from a personal transformation point of view it's really important so that's why we created critical minded i that was really long winded i apologize but those are i would say its roots
0: for the record this is a long winded safe space we <laughs> <laughs> put the long in long form <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> One of the things that I'm pulling from what you just said is some of the challenge of when you're swimming in the midst of a culture, of like removing it from right in front of your face and pulling it down so that you can look at it a little bit more, even if not objectively, at least like intuitively or fully or comprehensively. And some of the challenges that come from, you know, we talk a lot on the show in different contexts about like myths of objectivity and this like premise of being separate and being able to look at something. I'm curious how you see the differences or the contrast between objectivity as a writer and that outsider position that you were talking about before?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think objectivity is not a very useful term. (laughs) I think objectivity has been pretty consistently, maybe not debunked, but at least problematized, you know, by some smart people. I think that the at the end of the day, what I'm always looking for is a degree of candor and humility around one's own approach or one's own limitations. So that's first and foremost. And then rigor. I'm all about rigor. My friend Lloyd Alimbal, who just has a film that just came out called Through the Night, uh, I wrote a piece about it for Black Star Film Festival's uh, new journal. And. In the piece, I interviewed a bunch of people. First of all, I interviewed a bunch of people, right? This is one of my best friends. I've known her for 20 years. And I interviewed like, I don't know, 10 other people. Why? Because I know the limitations of my own experience with her and that all of those other perspectives will add insight that helps you understand her. The end in the piece, I say, she's my good friend. We've been, you know, knowing each other for 20 years. So you're going to know that this is not a piece from, you know, a, a disinterested bystander, right? This is a piece from somebody who really cares. But you also know that I did the reporting to build it out. And in that piece, somebody described Loida as being rigorous without colonialism, and I was like, boom, that's it. Rigor without colonialism. I want a bumper sticker. I want a T-shirt. You know, I want a toothpaste. I want it all, Because rigor without colonialism is saying, here's what I bring, the treasures in what I bring, and here are the limitations of what I bring. And then I do additional reporting to build out from there. And that additional reporting has to be robust. And that's one of the real challenges of criticism now is that people don't get paid enough to do additional reporting. Um, And so that's part of what we're trying to do with Critical Minded is create uh, financial opportunities for critics to do their best work and also just push the media marketplace to understand the value of their
0: time. Mm the resonance of that model of I'm naming what I'm bringing, naming the limitations of that. And then I'm doing the work to fill in those blind spots or, or to transparently show how I'm addressing that to tell this story. I think that's a really like powerful way to approach. It seems useful at least for, for me in thinking about how to write and, and tell stories.
2: I'm glad. I'm glad. It's, it's definitely something that, um, you know, that I've tried to be, thoughtful about because when I started out as a writer, I was so young and so arrogant and just ridiculous. I wasn't doing the reporting that I needed to have done in order to be able to make my case. And over the years, I kind of receded because I became so acutely aware of my own limitations. You know, you find the balance, which is, you know, knowing yourself, knowing your, what your perspective is. And at the end of the day, if you're writing and you don't have a perspective why are you writing? To write is an affirmation of the value of your perspective. And the thing is, for me, that doesn't have to be a colonial position to take, right? The value of your own perspective can be a corrective to the existing narrative, which is actually super limited and doesn't include people like you or people like the people you talk to. Um, But I think you just have to be aware of of those dynamics as you go into it because the thing about objectivity and that mythology is that what it's done is taught journalists to pretend that they don't exist
0: all the parts of them don't exist
2: yeah I I don't know if this is true but it just makes me think about then how do you advocate for yourself then how do you understand your worth then how do you get economic justice for yourself when you're sort of erasing yourself and then at the same time we have this other cult of personality that happens where a lot of reporters are encouraged to have a tv presence or you know be influencers or this and that and i think in that case it becomes the opposite you know it becomes a real lack of insight about their own limitations many times and a lack of kind of humility about the need to report out a story as opposed to just you know take a position because it's provocative
0: yeah
1: in the conversations we've been having um, one of the things that resonates is I hear you identifying much more as a critic than as a writer and naming that the critics contribution or service uh is this like correction of this invisibilization, right? Like you saying, like to the, the, the journalist is supposed to perform as if they don't exist. And that connects a lot to, we, we just talked to Natalie Moore. She's saying like writing is just something you do uh and it's not, an identity that needs to be static. And also I'm thinking of this notion of contribution uh, that you have like repeatedly named from like the contribution of being backstage of I'm not just here for VIP or the contribution in these, you know, this Titan hip hop journalistic space where part of the album is the criticism and that moves the culture of where folks are um, in relationship to the ideas, not just like the sonics of the piece. Uh, So I wanna like pull some of those threads into this space you have right now in Critical Minded of where are the, the corners of the culture, like what, what are the, the proverbial concert or the proverbial magazine that we want to provoke right now? Or the, I'm putting myself in it, like I'm part of Critical Minded. <laughs> I use we sometimes a little, little too, too liberally, but uh, where are some of the spaces uh, that that contribution of correction should be happening, even if it's not yet happening right now?
2: My hope is that we could get to a place where um, artists and arts institutions would understand criticism as being a valuable part of the process. I love what you just said about you know the the critique of the album is part of the album. You know, it's it's how does it live in the world? How does it live in you know your own sonic experience, but then also in kind of your understanding of it and what you take away from it. And I don't know if you've had this experience, but this has happened to me a lot where I'll read a piece of criticism about something that I've already seen or heard, and I'll go back to it and I'll listen to it differently, you know, or I'll Mm -hmm. see it differently. That doesn't mean that I have to stick with um, the critic's interpretation, but it just means that it opens new views, right? It opens, it creates, uh, it helps me see new layers in something. You know, I mean, I think a lot of things happen, obviously, on social media. There's a lot of very powerful, critical conversations that happen on Twitter. And also there's a whole lot of um, critique that doesn't have the rigor and has more of the provocation to it. And so a big question for me moving forward, and this is one of the questions that I'd love to see, what we can do through critical minded, if and just to be clear, I'm on the, I'm a co-founder and I'm on the board, but my my real job is uh, at One World Book, so I, I do. Something. Which we'll get to. I'm yeah. super excited
0: to talk about. That. Right.
2: <laughs> I just I just want to be clear because I'm not I'm not the boss of this, um. But I think is what does it look like to talk about criticism and community? What does it look like for criticism to collide with, you know, movements? What does it look like for for all of us to be able to get feedback that isn't a hundred percent glowingly positive, but that comes from a place of commitment and love, right? I mean, what I experienced as a as a critic with I think Ilmatic is a good example. We gave him three and a half stars, right? To me that's a good those, that's good <laughs> but to him that was not good you know and he didn't feel great about it I, one of the things that I love about criticism and I love about writing actually that has developed over time for me is that it's just being in conversation with an editor and getting feedback and getting new ideas about how to to make it better even if I don't take all of the suggestions, that care that somebody is bringing to my work and help and propelling me forward. One of the big, again, on the rigor without colonialism approach, it is a big vote of confidence in your work to engage with it critically, because it means that you believe that you as an individual, as an artist can grow, right? If we don't engage with the work critically, basically what we're saying is either A, it's perfect, or B, you cannot grow there's lots of places where it could happen but i'm i am really concerned or, or or curious about the the community conversations idea because i do think that some of what's happening on social media has led us into a place of kind of adversarial dynamics that i don't think serve what we're aiming to do
0: yeah i mean there's so much relationship between that as an artist i believe you can grow and ideas of transformation and transformative justice and If we're accounting for power dynamic and what we're saying is that we're relating to this art together and we're bringing critique, there's this idea that together, like, that's what helps it grow, right? That's what helps it be better is all of us feeding it. It's not just on you to, um, one, you're probably not perfect and your art probably isn't perfect. And two, you're worth the time and the energy and the care to try to grow.
2: Can I say a thing about that, actually, that just occurred to me? one way of thinking about artistic process is this thinking about it as sort of the isolated genius model, right? One person, you know, and the ideas come from God or come from the muse or come from, you know, their own brain and they just deliver it whole to the world. Right. That hasn't been my lived experience partly because I'm not a genius, but partly because everything that I've done has been fed and developed in community. And that's true for me as a writer, as well as, you know, as an organizer and editor and all the other things that I do. And so that collective vision of, of artistic practice, and I think about it in hip hop, I think about it as the cipher, you know, it's like, how do you get better? You get better battling other people, right? You're, you're literally across from them and you are, you know, you're going toe to toe with another artist and
1: that's what enables you to grow. Battle rappers are the most intense cultural critics. That's true. They are. They are.
2: I mean, I always think. Well, I just saw the. I saw
1: the. What's about his feedback?
2: Yeah, exactly. You want some feedback? I got feedback. Forty year old, the forty year old version that had to do with with all of that. But then, if you think about criticism as one critic versus one artist, that's a way of, of understanding it. I understand it as a collective of critics and a collective of artists in an ongoing conversation and every piece of writing or every piece of critical discourse is one slice of that, but it's never in isolation. And I think when you think of it that way, it becomes so much more possible. And, and again, I, to me, it's a critique of capitalism too, because that one genius model to me is a capitalistic model of creativity that is completely inconsistent with my lived reality and what i'm interested in is collective creativity where it's like like there was a moment a few years ago i don't know if you all followed it where nas was accused of somebody else ghostwriting his lyrics and i was like i mean of course i don't know what happened i don't know if nas had any role in it or not but at the end of the day i was like the idea that somebody else was involved in his creative process to me is a good thing. I'm not troubled by that, um, as long as they're getting their royalties.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, first of all, I just want to say uh, we have nods here on the call. We're going to bring it right <laughs> now. No, <laughs> the <laughs> I, I completely agree on that individualism of the isolated genius and some of the like dangers of that is that it creates this combative. Um, and oppositional framing that, that you talked about about the difference between one critic versus one artist versus an ongoing conversation between people who actually can, similar to you, like and in some ways the two of us like st- be on both sides of that line of this is a time where I'm creating and this is when I'm receiving and giving criticism and that collaborative spirit. When I think about a rap battle that way, because you and I have talked a little bit about like the the just like assumption of competitiveness between rappers and like some of the the danger or effect of that um but when you think about it but there's a circle all around and they're giving response and feedback then it's a little bit more of a like a collaboration and a collective thing um, rather than just a a competitive thing
1: yeah competition i think is one of the the most intense contradictions in hip hop culture and it, you know i'm hearing criticism right in there of like we we usually frame these interactions as these like really destructive competitions like a, like it's a battlefield right like i heard artist versus artist critic versus artist critic versus critic um what i hear you pushing us towards is away from the battlefield metaphor towards like more of a dance floor metaphor, where instead of destroying each other, we are interacting in, like in this polyrhythm where we're all moving and engaging space together. And yeah, that's really beautiful. And I really love the way you connect to the notion of movement, of like where criticism can go. Uh, I imagine folks might need a new word because Muggs got super sensitive. <laughs> and I think when they just hear critical, they get really scared and defensive. Uh, but th- the notion of internal criticism as this healing and transformative practice is something that I get from... James and Grace Lee Boggs, is like that is necessary for our movements to be healthy and for our movements to adapt and evolve. And it doesn't feel like there is a, a real process to that space right now. So I love thinking of writing and critical writing as a way to not just like be in conversation with production, i.e. a film or an album, but with like communal worker, communal production with movements. so that's really that really resonates I, I want to transition because you you mentioned your work as an editor, and criticism feels like this really like external editing almost, but I think the internal criticism of editing is this much more like intimate process that I want to get a greater comfort with and I have like anxiety around uh, because one of the things I'm learning more and more is like every writer says. Generating is not writing, editing is writing. So I would love to like in the way you kind of one-on-one does into how you came into the world of criticism, kind of like take a step back of like how you entered the door as an editor and how you see this practice as part of this larger contribution we've been discussing in this anti-colonial rigor.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think for many people, the only way to make a living in magazines at the time that I was coming up in magazines was as an editor. And so I came in as an editor, which was kind of in some ways frustrating because I wanted to be a writer, but it was actually fantastic because it was the thing that made me a much better writer because it forced me to have that cruel detachment from your own words. and I feel like in this conversation, I've de-romanticized my relationship with language, but you should know that when I write a sentence and I think it's a good sentence, I get very, very proud of myself and I really, really want to hold on to it. And I'm very non-Buddhist about the whole thing. And so being being an editor has just forced me to understand, okay, you know what? That sentence is gorgeous. You can print it out and you can put it on your wall, but you can't leave it at that piece, you know, because it doesn't fit. And so that kind of steely eyed, Clarity, um, I was kind of forced to develop at a at a young age, and I'm really really grateful for that. And I worked with some incredible writers. I edited Greg Tate, which is kind of an impossibility. I edited Karen Good Marable, who's one of my all time faves. You know, I edited incredible writers, and just I think fundamentally, it's not about me. I'm really interested in in supporting other people's creative process. You know, supporting other people's vision. And so that's why I'm the person who does build these initiatives, because at the end of the day, I know that me as a critic, okay, cool. <laughs> you know, but the idea of having a collective of critics, you know, Indigenous critics, Black critics, you know, other critics of color, rewriting art history, rewriting musical history, present, future, you know, that idea really excites me. And, and that's part of it is an editorial vision and part of it is like a mission vision. Um, so what I'm doing now in my role at One World, uh, basically what is so crazy is that I am the most senior Latina in publishing right now which is very alarming because they should have a lot more Latinas in publishing or Latinx people in general. Um, But it's me. (laughs) And so what, what am I doing here? I'm doing, my goal is to ensure that some books and some people who wouldn't otherwise be available to you in a bookstore are. And specifically, I'm thinking about Latinx splendor. That's my numero uno. That's my number one idea. Because I just feel like, first of all, Latinx people are so desperately underrepresented in the archive, right? What does that mean that we're, you know, this huge, you know, population in this country, 18% of the country, and we're like, I don't know. Teeny percentage of the books, right? so what does that mean for us in terms of how we understand ourselves and our history and our future? and then when we do get represented, we tend to be represented as victims. What about our splendor? what about our deliciousness? what about our you know our just flyness that's what I'm interested in um, so that's what I'm here for you know i'm I'm here with the goal of supporting all these wonderful, brilliant voices um, in a getting out into the world, you know, b not including any mediocre sentences in that process. And then c connecting the work to the world in a meaningful way. So to movements and to places that, you know, libraries, whatever places that they wouldn't otherwise get. That's my, that's my job.
0: First of all, what important work and y'all have like, a remarkable lineup of things that have been published, and I'm excited to hear more. I'm curious to that point, actually, you mentioned being the most uh, senior Latina in the publishing industry, and and there's not that there's no precedent, but there is this woeful underrepresentation, even if it's outside of publishing. So maybe in music or some other art form, is there any like analog or lineage that you see yourself in or, or anyone that you go like, I'm the, you know, the blank of the publishing world? I was going to make like a like a Def Jam analogy of albums. But I also think like this is a different thing. You're in a different position. So is there a yeah, is there a lineage that you see yourself connected to or a, a blank to fill in that blank?
2: Oh, my goodness. That's a big question. Um, I mean, look, One World existed before this current iteration and and published some incredible books. And so in some ways, I'm just honored to be part of that history so that's i would say numero uno def jam (laughs) i can't def jam everything that's come out about russell and that's what i was gonna say
0: that's why i took a step i was like this this doesn't line up here
2: it doesn't line up but you know i think that there are legendary editors of you know tony morrison is somebody who i look to i am i I would never in a million years say that i have anything to do with her but just (laughs) i do i'm inspired by her because she did the thing that i'm interested in, which is she amplified her own voice. And she also did so much to amplify other voices. And lots of people do that, right? But it's in this case, it's literally in the archive, you know, Angela Davis is in the archive, because Toni Morrison brought her in. And that's just, you know, completely gives me goosebumps to think about that kind of role. And and when she when she played that role. Then I'm also thinking, because I think that One World is in this and it's not by accident, right? My boss, Chris Jackson, has played a really important role in all of this. It has helped organizers to gain access to big audiences, right? And in some ways that's you know, that's that's what Tony Morrison did. That's what Haki You know, all these different um, editors and publishers have played that role. And that's been a really important piece. Um, But I think that One World is kind of popularizing some of those voices in a very special way. I've been thinking a lot about the former young lord, Richie Perez. Um, I've been thinking also about mentorship. You know, is being an editor being a form of mentor? I think in some ways it is. But I think about those people who you maybe know them for their own work, but he's somebody who has mentored just a generation of incredible organizers and artists, many of whom I know. So those are some people I'm really inspired by. I don't know that there's um, there's probably an obscure Bay area hip hop label that in some ways I could, you know, shout out in this moment. I've listened to a lot of that of music from there, um, but I'm going to just, I'm going to let it go, <laughs> but thank you for asking. And I'll, I'm going to keep thinking about
0: that and see if I have a better answer. Yeah, someone in the Bay who sold eight million albums out of their trunk. No, there.
2: no, no, not that guy. Not
0: that guy. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: I do listen to him more than you would think. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I did. Anyway, that's a. I'm not going to go down yeah. a, a too short rabbit hole here.
1: It's a very short rabbit. Hole. <laughs> yeah. But, but in some of the, you know, in just, uh, joking pushback. I, I do want to get back to editing because th- there's so many amazing things there. And definitely the Toni Morrison thing resonates. But in the resistance of the Def Jam joke and the the, the guy in the trunk, uh, with, or not the guy in the trunk, <laughs> 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 the guy whose music is in the trunk, yeah. it makes me go back to some of the, the question that Nate kind of seated us with in this suite was about how there's this relationship between curiosity and even passion and I'll even add integrity, and like risk and danger that that writers face uniquely of one asking a question that's not okay or making a claim that may be honest and true that then results in so much risk and pushback. Um, and so I, I want to connect, you know, some of the work I know you've done um, in connection to the conversation we just had with, with Natalie Moore and her book on deconstructing Tyrone of the intentionality of writing against patriarchy, particularly like hip-hop patriarchy and gendered violence, um, and the real risk that is involved in using the page to resist this type of violence, but how it's also, I think, there is this like 10, 20-year tradition of, if we want to call it feminist, I think that's appropriate, but just anti-patriarchal, anti-violent, femme-centered writing that has created, I think, this new context for movement to even be in a stronger place or a more intersectional place uh, and so yeah just connecting this notion of curiosity or intentionality with like risk and danger and particularly some of your experience I know writing about violence and and uh, how important it is to amplify in the face of those risks
2: Thank you for that question um and it's it's something that I've wrestled with a lot. I would definitely say that um, my work is feminist work and it's feminist pragmatics. You know, the, the Mm. big um, reason that I published Love Hurts, um, the book on gender-based violence and hip hop in Vibe magazine was because I felt really strongly that when we talk about gender-based violence, so often it happens in women's magazines. And I was like, (laughs) I think the people who really need to read this are not, Reading women's magazines. And so I think that as a journalist, you think about whistleblowers, you think about the people who have the courage to talk to you, right? And those people, um, Eliza Rios, uh, Big Pun's widow, who was one of the people who talked to me for that piece, enormous courage, you know, enormous courage and enormous cost to herself for Speaking out, she had been, you know, everybody's favorite first lady of Latino hip hop, and then she wasn't and she got cut out of uh, she stopped getting money from Fat Joe he just recently settled with her but she was homeless for a period of time she was selling puns jewelry it was a nightmare. That's the whistleblower, right? That's her experience. But as the journalist, you're kind of also a whistleblower. You're like a whistleblower once removed because you're quoting her and you're making the decision to go public with a position that is unpopular and that puts you at risk. And that also can change the culture, you know, and that also can have an enormous impact. That article for years afterwards, still, I get people coming up to me saying, I was in an abusive relationship. You helped me see that, you know, you gave me language for that. Uh, There's a a street organization that I had been trying to talk to uh, for an interview and they were fans of that article. They decided to talk to me because they had read it. You know, it was one of the most important things I've ever done and the hardest thing I've ever done. Definitely. You know, I always encourage people like if somebody comes forward and says a thing or particularly writes a thing, goes on the record, tells the truth, that is the person who will feel the heat, you know, They will also give us a new new language and a new way forward. Actually, when I was in philanthropy recently, I did a bunch of funding for people who were being attacked for their public statements. And you know who was at the top of that list? It was women of color journalists. You know, they have big audiences. They get trolled all the time. And it's completely normalized. Um, And so I believe that having hard conversations is part of moving us forward as a community, but the people who enable those conversations, who do the reporting, who tell their own stories, all of them, are at risk and all of them in my opinion are heroes you know and so if I could design it I would really support those folks and that's literally what I did I designed a program called the unicorn fund (laughs) (laughs) that was about that because I realized that nobody else was doing it and we were asking people to come forward and speak their truths but we were not recognizing the costs associated with that
0: yeah and so much whether it's culturally or even like Sociopolitically, politically is like a, a disincentive to do that right like all we have is a punitive response so much of the time like it reminds me of something that um, miriam kaba said back in her abolition suite it's just true in a slightly different context but thinking about like taking accountability is disincentivized for the person who needs to do it because they know that the only response to that that we have in place is punitive or at worst carceral And so, yeah, building the infrastructure that makes that easier and, uh, you know, has some like mediation. I'm curious. I I don't know a ton about that that unicorn fund, but in that instance or just in general, how do you think about that relationship to the person coming forward? And uh, if people are, you know, as journalists or writers or interviewers or academics even, what would you want them to know about that responsibility to the person who comes forward?
2: The first thing is to say if you understand truth telling as being a transformational practice, then you need to provide scaffolding for the truth tellers. You know, in the years since Love Hurts came out, you know, I got awards, I, you know, I got attention for it. But at at the time, I got death threats, you know, and that was pre kind of social media. That was really at a time where I was not as get at you know, and it was still scary. Um, so I think that's a really big part of it. And then I think the other point that you just made in terms of abolition, one of the challenges of being a whistleblower or dealing with issues that have legal implications, if you are an abolitionist, or if you are, uh, you know, critical of the criminal justice system is that, you know, I said this, I, I was invited to do a 15-year anniversary, a quinceanera for Love Hurts, because it came out 15 years ago in in Jezebel. And I was reflecting on the fact that the cops were a key source for me in doing that story. I had to get legal records. I had to get uh, freedom of information. All the scaffolding that I needed in order to be legally able to do that story and for Vibe to be legally willing to publish it was against my beliefs, right? Right. I don't believe that incarcerating abusers is the right way to handle um, violence. I believe in a in a different approach, and so that's something I was really reflecting on: is like how do you how do you think about the contradictions inherent in in these questions, and how do you protect and support people who are trying to navigate the complexities there?
0: Yeah, it's so akin to what we just talked about with Natalie last week about the. The radical potential of acknowledging contradiction, the transparency of that opens up so much space for readers or people who are engaging those ideas to feel like there's room for them even if they are feeling the contradiction of those things too.
2: And, that, and again, I think that's where if you could see criticism or journalism or these conversations as collective actions for communities, then the people who are taking the most risk and sort of on the front lines of that work, because we are like when you're a reporter, you're on the front lines of a particular type of work. It's a different front line, but it is a front line. Then I think there would be opportunities for kind of collective support and resource sharing and understanding, you know, what would it mean for journalism or truth telling or or whatever you call it, or writing um, to be perceived as a community practice and to be tethered to community so that people would understand its value and understand the protection that's required and all of the infrastructure that's required. Wow. Yeah. that
1: That's really powerful. There's this, there's, there's so much that that's, that's resonating in that. So I'm, I'm yeah. thinking back to, again, as we always do, touching into some abolitionist talk of, you know, just a sprinkle. <laughs> Andrea Richie's being kind of at the forefront of the contradictions of carceral fem- feminism uh, that I hear resonating with you of like, this is against my principles and values, but at the time, all we have. Uh, and just wanting to also highlight how so many times these systems also endanger those who are being harmed in ways that complicate. But I also am really moved by this notion of writing and journalism uh, as communal tools for transformative accountability. I don't think we like see that as intentionally for like, folks who've been harmed, folks who've done harm, Like how writing out the impact and the consequences is a new avenue, I think, that we need to invest more deeply in. Uh, but I want to pull that back to all of the context of conversation we've been having about editing and criticism, like as we think about going into this much more vulnerable human space around accountability and communal transformation, how does editing and or criticism need to be different or more sensitive or more adaptive to like the needs for these transformative approaches? Does does, does that question make sense?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that, um, you know, not everybody who's a critic is a political, animal, <laughs> you know, not everybody yeah, yeah, a critic yeah. is, is, is seeing their work um, in a more expansive context. You know, there are critics who really just want to focus on classical guitar and that's pretty much it,
0: you know? Yeah. And so well, that's why, that's why we booked you.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so I think one of the big challenges for criticism generally is to move away from all or nothing critique where, you know, you're kind of throwing out a work or you're anointing a work um, into nuance, you know. Nuance is the place where possibilities live. It's more of an invitation to curiosity versus um, a defining document. And I think for critics, being willing to see their work as an invitation as opposed to a judgment, an invitation to the reader and an invitation to the artist to consider a different perspective on their work. And I think editing is the same thing very much. I mean, if as an editor, my experience is that if I tell a, a writer I'm working with that Either their piece is great or their piece is terrible. There's not too many places to go from either one of those positions, you know, (laughs) whereas if you're able to say, I'm curious about what you meant by this, or I'm curious about where this might open up into. I think that becomes a much more useful position to play from. I think also that that implies that the critic is not or the editor isn't positioning themselves as the judge and jury, but they're positioning themselves as a really enthusiastic reader or listener or viewer who is sort of an ambassador for other readers in sort of advocating for a position of curiosity.
0: Yeah, it's a, it sounds like a combination of curiosity, but then also on both sides, a, a certain amount of like trust Also, that the critic or editor will see the, like, effort as valid while still being able to critique and that the writer will also, I think, I could imagine it's difficult not to come in with your kind of hackles raised against either being anointed or torn down, um, that, that's where the communal piece comes in, right? Is that those power imbalances exist beyond just like the review or the first draft of notes that has to do with like how the whole ecosystem functions.
2: Yeah, I think, so one of the questions I think regarding what you asked is about an individual critic and how they approach the work or an individual editor and how they approach the work. But I think others, a, a big part of this is just structural. A big part of this is if we see each other as part of related communities that are in process together then the adversarial dynamic is really i think lessened in many ways not completely eliminated but i think i think that shifts things whereas if you know the critic is perceived as an outsider the critic has no relationship to either the artistic practice or the communities that produce it then you really set up a situation where it's very difficult to achieve that communal process. And I think also this is different from being an editor, right? Being an editor, you are in cahoots with the artist, right? Or with the writer. Um, As a critic, it's not exactly the same because you're working after the fact and you're not necessarily working in service of that particular artist. You're working in service of the broader artistic process. Um, But I, I do think that it's also really important for readers, people who are interested in criticism, to understand that, critics actually have to be independent in order to be effective in their work. If we spend all our time soft peddling what we have to say or actually being unwilling to tell the truth because we are worried about everybody's feelings getting hurt, the art suffers, you know, and I'm not, I don't say that in a kind of, you know, shut up and deal with it kind of way, but just that there actually is an integrity and value to the critical process being uh, its own thing and that that needs to also be understood. So I think that there's multiple pieces that go into a sort of productive and healthy critical relationship.
0: Yeah. You know, we, we've we talked about this so much kind of in the, not abstract, but in theory behind it uh, of what this better process could look like, or more sustainable transformative process could look like. I want to ground it one last time in your experience and your criticism, uh, specifically within hip hop, because I think, especially in some of the communal conversation that we were having it's one of the ways that I think, Damon, you've said this before, like hip hop provides this meta narrative also, where you can see the processes happening and being discussed as part of the form in a way that a lot of other genres don't do. So whether it was in your experience choosing the amount of mics versus like uh, what what we see now, and there's always this kind of balance between who is part of that community and has a right to be giving critique, um, versus the extracting and the power imbalances that exist within like turning communal art form into a global multinational industry. What do you think hip hop teaches us about the ways that criticism can be uniquely wielded, uh, as a violent tool? And are there any examples or, or processes that you've seen within hip hop specifically that you think should be applied or could be applied to, um, critique as a whole? So I'll share
2: um, a story of an incident that I was involved in where I wrote about Jay-Z years ago when he, um, he had this moment where he was wearing the Che t-shirt. He was also, I actually was at a party where he was uh, walking around and he was wearing a Jesus piece that had gold and diamonds. And as he walked, the Jesus piece was smacking Che t- Guevara upside the head. And for me, that was a very potent metaphor because it was like Jesus Christ, who is, you know, a revolutionary, you know, in his own way. But gold, diamonds, Chigewara, you know, physical, you know, just it was like too much for me. It was Sometimes
0: like, you stumble on a metaphor and you're like, oh, I'm, this one's going. This one's going in a draft. I can tell you that much. This
2: is going in. I wrote about it. And I wrote about the fact that, you know, there's a difference between representing, you know, like the revolutionary chic of Che Guevara and what he stood for. I didn't get into the Jesus part, but I could have too, right? Because Christianity was not about blood diamonds, for example. So I wrote this piece and through a long and convoluted story, he wound up reading it. And he called me, this is so funny because at the time I was living with a wonderful Brazilian friend, who did not know who Jay-Z was. And so I was freaking out because he called me and he said, he said, you write like I rap. The piece that I wrote was very critical of him. And it was basically like the mystique of Che Guevara should not be commodified in service of capitalism. And it shouldn't, and, you know, Jay-Z should, you know, at, at the very least consider the contradictions in what he is presenting himself right now. And so then he... On the Black album, there's a song called PSA in which he says,
0: I'm like, check your barrel with bling on. I'm complex. I never claimed I have wings on.
2: That was a response to what I had written. So that was a situation where somebody read a critical essay that was asking, I think, some important questions about him, about revolutionary chic, about the distance between that and actual change. And he read it and, and it affected his work and it actually inspired different work from him. So I think, you know, that, that situation was like, you know, it's a funny thing. I'm going to name drop, but I have to do this. Tanahasi Coates, who I worked with many, many years ago, and I saw, and now he's on the One World every time I see him, he's like, I can't believe Jay-Z wrote that song in response. I'm like, you're kind of I'm nothing. But it was just, it was interesting because basically I think what it was, was that I took him seriously. And then in turn, he took me seriously, you know, and he wasn't insecure about it. It was like, I disagree ultimately with his reading of what I had to say, but I appreciate the fact that he, um, you know, that he paid attention and, uh, in that moment I was working at 5 and my friend ran into my office she's like you're battling Jay-Z. So I don't know if that captures what you were thinking about in terms of what criticism does in the world but that's that for me was one of the better experiences that I had where I feel like we were having a dialogue that was making me better and I think was also making him better.
0: Yeah. No, I think that's a that's a really cool example of it like in practice. No, I mean it's 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 an amazing story and
1: was aware of it so thank you for sharing it with us as well and you know one of the things i I take away from it is like kind of this this reflection towards amplification right like i hear you naming that this like interplay of discourse within a context within a cultural space that allows what gets amplified to be reshaped or to go further hearing that experience of then shaping one of the loudest voices in one of the loudest cultures in human history, this shows just the power of the pen, like not even to be like kind of cheesy or to get back to the bars, but the idea of like you write like I rap and then that therefore that type of honesty and that type of cultural communication has these type of global interactions. He's still very comfortable in that contradiction. Though. <laughs> that, 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 that's kind of funny. He did like a uh, follow back up in the dialectical process, uh, but he got there.
2: I mean, I, I would have, uh, yeah, I think what happened, you know, I, I haven't really thought about the, this way, but I think that what happened was that he was able to use what I had offered in order to push something you know a little bit further f- for himself but not that much further you know and <laughs> because at the end of the day like of course it's a power dynamic right at the end of the day if he doesn't want to continue the contemplation he doesn't have to continue the contemplation and he gets a great song out of it which I
0: you know I have not seen any royalties <laughs> but he's not he's not getting any royalties from this podcast so I think it's even <laughs> there we um, go take that jigger
2: yeah no but i think one of the things that i always say about criticism is that when it's well placed and when you have the opportunity and this is one of the things i'm a little worried about right now because i've seen a lot of prominent artists really speak out against criticism in ways that are quite alarming from my perspective because it's chance yeah i mean yeah not and just and so what what that means i think is that these avenues through which kind of the little guy or the audience or the um the the fan or, or just the regular person has the opportunity to affect or interject in an artist's trajectory it's maybe harder for that to happen um i think what happened with jay-z and i feel like this is you know what i spoke to before about the source and stuff artists are fans too if you're at the top of your game at an art as an artist you're paying attention to everybody else and you're paying attention to the conversation about everybody else. So you have a situation where critics who are making like $30,000 a year, which is a rounding error on your expense account, matter to you, you know? The intellectual economy of that is really interesting, even at the same time as the critics like can't feed their families or really struggling, but they also have a line to making a decision about how many mics you get in the source or whatever it is that matters to the culture. And so it's this really interesting dynamic where you're sitting on, you know, or you go on a press junket or you go to this event or that event and you feel glamorous and then you go home and you don't have health care, you know, or whatever it is. But I do think that people like, I think Jay-Z, maybe at that phase of his career, or maybe just as a whole, he's a confident person, you know, and he's a curious person to a certain extent. So he's like, oh, there's this person who's taking my work seriously. I don't agree with her, but I think this might be worth playing with,
0: you know? At least entering into the conversation. Mm -hmm. All right, let's get out of here. This has been a a, a hellraiser of a, of a logistical podcast more so than, <laughs> than usual. I'm just so glad we got to hang out. Um, and thank you for all your patience and work for, for those listening at home, a little glimpse behind the curtain. This has been recorded over multiple days in multiple locations, multiple countries. Uh, yeah. We need like a, like a making of documentary the way like albums do. Um, so l- let's end with the, the same two part question that we're asking everyone in this suite to, to answer. Um, what is the best advice you ever got about writing and what is the worst advice you ever got?
2: Okay. So I think the best advice I've ever gotten about writing is write what only you can write. And that's the advice I give my writers too, because Mm. I think a lot of times we want to write, you know, be completist or feel like you have to make a case uh, in a way that is much more, almost defensive like you're you're making that case because you're afraid of taking the position and what I'm always trying to encourage myself and and others to do is to see ourselves as as having something worthwhile to say and um, saying it plainly and consistently and then in worst advice I I'll just say that and this may be Not exactly what you want. But years ago, I had an experience when I was at Vibe, actually. There was something that I was very adamant that I wanted to keep in the piece. And the editor-in-chief cut it. And I argued with him hard. And he was merciless. He was like, nope, not going to stay. Done. You know, it's rare that I have that conflict with an editor. And then years later, I went back and read it. And he was totally right. (laughs) So that's not the worst. It's not worst advice. But it's just I think in that moment, I had the worst. idea. And I think that, you know, whenever you get a chance to go back and you're like, oh, you know, I'm so attached to this or I'm so attached to that. And I'm totally wrong. And that has been a frequent experience for me as a writer.
0: <laughs> well, shout out to editors who can do that graciously, though. That seems like a good lesson to take into it when you sit on the other side of the desk. Uh, thank you again so much for, for being here and sharing your thoughts and building this conversation that we haven't had on the show before, but I think is really important. Um, how can folks find you and your work in the ways you want to be found? I am
2: on Twitter and Instagram. I am not very effectively on there. So the best place if you're interested in seeing my work, you can go to ElizabethMendezBerry.com. Um, and then you can also check out One World Books uh, website, which I cannot rattle off off the top of my head.
0: And we'll put it in the in the show notes below. Um, perfect. We're at Ergo Radio. I'm at Ergo Kiss.
1: I'm at Damon underscore AF.
0: We'll be back on the line in the new year, continuing our notebook suite with the writers reshaping the culture of our city and world for the more equitable and creative.
1: Much love to the people.
0: Peace.